This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening. Welcome. Uh, thank you for being here this evening. It's my privilege to introduce uh, Dr. Stephen Davis. Some of you may have this experience where you, those of you who are students, might think that some of your classmates are incredibly capable and bright and that someday you're going to hear from them. And that is exactly what students here at Whitworth years ago thought when they attended Whitworth with Steve Davis. They realized their classmate would likely become a great scholar. Uh, Steve served as a delegate with Whitworth's Model United Nations. He was an ASWC, because it was Whitworth College back then, executive in charge of, of elections. He was a dorm president and chaplain. He was voted the most inspirational senior by his classmates. And the Whitworth women named him Mr. Pensive Power yeah, for his intellect. No slouch in the excuse me, athletics arena, he also co-captained Whitworth's fledgling soccer team. And as a side note, that soccer interest uh, led to a 28-year tenure as the head men's soccer coach at Claremont College, where he racked up more than 350 wins and two dozen conference titles. After graduating from Whitworth with degrees in history and philosophy, Davis earned a Master of Divinity degree from Princeton Seminary and a doctorate in philosophy from Claremont Graduate University in California. He has taught philosophy at Claremont McKenna College for nearly four decades, and he's presently the Russell K. Pitzer Professor of Philosophy and has been since 2003. Davis is the recipient of the 2001 Claremont McKenna College Presidential Award for Merit. He has also received Whitworth's Distinguished Alumnus Award, and in 2011, Whitworth gave him the always coveted honorary doctorate. His late wife, Cheris, was a 1962 Whitworth alum and for whom an endowed scholarship is named here at Whitworth. Davis Scholarship specializes in current Christian thought, ancient philosophy, metaphysics, philosophy and literature, and especially philosophy of religion. He has published or edited 14 books, including his most recent, Rational Faith, A Philosopher's Defense of Christianity. He's also the author of numerous articles and reviews that have been published in philosophical and theological journals. The Whitworth community is deeply honored to call Steve one of its own, and I was privileged to have him as part of my doctoral committee when I was a graduate student at Claremont. His life, his intellect, his ministry, and his academic accomplishments have served as a witness for all of us who know him. Please welcome Dr. Stephen Davis. Well, as always, it's a great joy for me to be here. Whenever I come to uh, Whitworth, 
I feel like I'm coming home. And uh, I, I mean that very seriously. And it's an honor to be here tonight to speak to you folks. I want to talk about the concept of autonomy. The word autonomy is used a great deal in a great variety of contexts. The word has accepted and understood uses in fields like philosophy, religion, political theory, international relations, psychology, sociology, medicine, and robotics. I'm going to focus on what is often called personal autonomy, beginning with the use of that term in moral philosophy. But I want to note at the outset of my talk that it's going to arrange over, I'm going to arrange over a great variety of fields, philosophy, biblical studies, theology, and maybe even a little bit of autobiography. A great deal of attention has been given to the notion of personal autonomy in modern and recent moral philosophy. It began with Kant and still continues today. Although many aspects of autonomy are fiercely debated, I think there is broad consensus on the notion that personal autonomy is a great good, maybe even an intrinsic good. You are considered autonomous if you govern yourself, if you live by your own reasons and decisions, if you deliberate among various well-understood options, and then freely decide what you are going to do. That makes you a morally responsible agent, where very roughly, you are morally responsible if you can legitimately be praised or rewarded if what you did was good, or punished or blamed if what you did was bad. You are not autonomous if you are manipulated by influences that are external to you, even if they are paternalistically motivated. You are not autonomous if you are brainwashed, coerced, or addicted. You are not autonomous if you must do what an external authority tells you to do. Now, I have little problem with this basic understanding of autonomy. Indeed, as I've just explained it, I think it's pretty much platitudinous. But a slight hint that something might be amiss here comes from within moral philosophy itself. Some philosophers, especially feminist philosophers, have argued that the ideal of personal autonomy, when fully developed, which I, of course, have not tried to do here, leans too much toward, and in fact is coded language for muscular and masculine values like individualism and independence. It ignores the social relationships, these critics say, especially relationships of dependency and cooperation in which all of us are embedded in moral situations, preeminently family and friendship relations. Naturally, defenders of autonomy, including some feminists, have replied to those criticisms, and it's not part of my purpose tonight to go into that, go into them any further. I am going to argue, however, that there is good and bad autonomy, or as I will call them, real autonomy and excessive autonomy. Good autonomy or real autonomy is the great good that I've just described. Excessive autonomy is going to be the subject of most of the rest of my talk tonight. It is well expressed, excessive autonomy that is, is well expressed by philosopher Joel Feinberg in his pithy statement, I am autonomous if I rule me and no one else rules I. 
Here's a true story. For years, I have taught a class called Philosophy of Religion. One of the units in that class is always a study of the classic arguments for the existence of God in the history of philosophy. One day, just after class, one of my students approached me and in substance said, Professor Davis, I don't like these proofs for the existence of God. I don't want any of them to be convincing. I don't want there to be a God who tells me to do one thing and not another. I want to run my own life. Now, of course, I had already studied Kant and contemporary moral philosophy, and naturally I had already encountered the concept of autonomy. But that conversation was the first thing that got me thinking along the lines of perhaps there is a shadow side to personal autonomy, that there is something called excessive autonomy. Let me push a little bit harder on that point. It seems to me that if there is any one lofty value on which most university students today agree, and I think probably most educated people, I think it is the value of personal freedom and autonomy. Now, I'm going to burlesque it a bit here, but my students often seem to think, so far as I can tell, maybe in an inchoate way, roughly along these lines. Nobody has the right to tell me what to believe or do, what clothing to wear, how I style my hair, what my political preferences will be, whom I will date, whom I will eventually marry, what career path I will follow, what my religious beliefs will be or not be, or what sort of person I will become. Those matters are my business and mine alone. And if anybody does try to tell me what to do, that person is interfering with my personal rights. And thinking about those sorts of sentiments caused me to wonder where excessive autonomy, or the desire for it, got started in the first place. And that sort of question will often lead Christians to scripture as it did to me. Does excessive autonomy have anything to do with original sin? Another course I frequently teach at my school is called Introduction to Religious Thought, because I'm a member of both the Religious Studies Department and the Philosophy Department there. One unit in this course is a study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent asks Eve an apparently innocuous question. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? But was the question really innocent? Was the serpent already in a subtle way implying that God was too authoritarian? Eve correctly replied that God allowed them to eat the fruit of any of the tree, any tree in the garden, except one. But then she quoted God as saying, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. Strictly speaking, the middle clause in Eve's statement was an exaggeration supplied by Eve herself. God had never said, nor shall you touch it. Then the serpent, who was said to be more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made, said, you will not die. For, the, for God knows that when you eat of it, 
Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Note that just before eating the fruit and sharing it with Adam, Eve saw that the fruit was, among other things, to be desired to make one wise. So here is another charge that the serpent was apparently bringing against God. He is jealous. He does not want to share his own knowledge and wisdom. This text describes what is often called the fall. There is no such word in the Hebrew. The the fall, that term, is just a Christian term for what happens in Genesis chapter 3. It records what is called the original sin. In Christian history, a great deal of hermeneutical and theological work has been done trying to figure out what was the essence of that original sin, and indeed, what is the essence of human sinfulness in general. Was it envy? Was it sexual desire? Was it disobedience? Was it lack of trust in God? Or just what was it? I'm not going to enter very much into that discussion now, I will just note that the Augustinian tradition has always emphasized pride. Sometimes the word pride is entirely positive in connotation, as in the statement, people should take pride in their work. Here, I guess it means something like self-respect or perhaps a legitimate sort of self-esteem arising, say, from one's accomplishments or at least a desire that they be worthy of respect. But of course, in other settings, pride has pejorative connotations, especially when a sort of egotism or self-conceit is involved, as in the old adage, pride goes before a fall. Many Christian theologians have held that pride, in this second sense, is the origin and root of all wrongdoing. Here the word pride refers to an arrogant assumption of superiority, a placing of oneself above others, and a refusal to bow the knee to God in obedience. Adam and Eve sinned because they wanted to be God, or to be like God. They were unsatisfied with their status as being under God's authority. Like the student who spoke to me after class years ago, they wanted to rule themselves. We might say that what they wanted was excessive autonomy. They wanted no longer to need God. A bit later in Genesis, in chapter 11, we read the story about a great tower. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Then the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all have one language, And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. 
So the Lord scattered them abroad from, from there over all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. This story, the story concludes that this city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the language of the people. This deep and puzzling story presupposes, I think, the human tendency towards self-aggrandizement and rebellion against God, although it interprets that tendency in a more corporate and social way than the story of the fall does. Here, technology is an explicit part of the story, and technology becomes an aid to the evil tendency in human beings. The human race has developed to the point of living in cities, using bricks to build with, and erecting great towers. I think Genesis wants us to understand that the attempt to build the great tower at Babel was an act of pride on the part of the people who lived there. They wanted to make a name for themselves, as the Bible says, and even to reach the heavens. That is, they wanted no longer to have to serve God. They wanted to rival God or even to be God. They reached too far. Now, I cannot quite argue that it was the desire for excessive personal autonomy that motivated the Babylonians. Their activities in the story are described not as individual quests, but as a corporate effort. Nevertheless, I think the story in Genesis 11 wants us to understand that what they did amounted to rebellion against God. They wanted to storm the heavens and usurp God's place. Building the tower amounted to something quite close to the desire for personal autonomy. Perhaps, at heart, the desire for personal autonomy is the desire to escape from God. In his autobiography, called The Words, Jean-Paul Sartre, the great French atheistic existentialist philosopher of the 20th century, tells a story about an encounter with God that he had as a child. He said, only once did I have the feeling that he, capital H, that he existed. I had been playing with matches and burnt a small rug. I was in the process of covering up my crimes when suddenly God saw me. I felt his gaze inside my head and on my hands. I whirled about in the bathroom, horribly visible, a live target. Indignation saved me. I flew into a rage against so crude an indiscretion. I blasphemed. I muttered like my grandfather, God damn it, God damn it, God damn it. He, capital H, never looked at me again. I interpret this intriguing story as follows. The child Sartre wanted to escape God's gaze, God's authority over him, God's disapproval of his naughtiness. Sartre wanted autonomy, and God stood in the way. God had to be disposed of. Critics of religion often fashion arguments that, are purport, that purport to be deep explanations of why people mistakenly believe in God. This research program began in earnest with the three great projection, projectionist theorists of the, late, of the late 19th and early 20th century, Feuerbach, Marx, and Freud. Do people believe in God because they desire a cosmic father figure who will shield them from life's perils? 
Or do they want a tolerant and merciful divine authority figure who will forgive them and relieve them of their guilt? Or are they frightened of the prospect of death and want there to be an avuncular power who will graciously take them after death to a place of eternal bliss? Religious skeptics sometimes suggest that it is weak and demeaning for human beings to depend on God in the face of life's problems. It amounts to abandoning one's autonomy, to a kind of slavery. Life can be hard, they admit, but whatever problems we face, we just have to deal with them as best we can. Religion tends to enslave people. Religion is for the weak, for those who can't make it on their own, for those who need the help of clergy, ritual, sacred texts, and God. But here I have a question. Could the need for excessive personal autonomy similarly be a deep reason for not theism, but atheism? So far as a desire that God not exist, as opposed, I suppose, to a belief that God does not exist, it certainly seems so. Thus, the eminent New York philosopher Thomas Nagel famously wrote, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a universe like that. And similarly, Guy Kahani writes that he does not want to live in a universe in which human beings are the subordinates of a moral superior, a superior who deserves our allegiance and worship, and where we have been created to play a part in some cosmic divine plan. Well, let me ask this. What is it that keeps people from God? Obviously, some folk are atheists because they were raised that way by their parents. Others know religious believers who are cruel or dishonest or hypocritical. Others are concerned about great evils committed historically by the church. It's support, for example, for, of, of anti-Semitism or the oppression of women or of slavery. In academic communities, one frequently encounters the assertion that intellectual difficulties constitute the main problem. And there is no doubt that such factors as these are significant. I do not want to deny, for example, that some people reject the existence of God primarily for intellectual reasons. But Christianity teaches that pride is the deepest reason for rejecting God. People do not want to admit that they need the guidance or protection or forgiveness of God. They find God to be an obstacle to their freedom, to their ability to do what they want to do with immunity from divine judgment. That desire, so I say, is the desire for excessive autonomy. There is even an argument against the existence of God, you might say an atheistic proof, that I think is convincing to very many people today. I'm going to call this argument the lifestyle argument against the existence of God. It's a very simple argument, a two-step proof. Premise one, I am not living and do not want to live the kind of life that God would want me to live if God existed. Conclusion, therefore God does not exist. Now, of course, the lifestyle argument is obviously absurdly fallacious as a piece of logic. 
But in my opinion, that does not prevent many people from being influenced by it. Now, of course, everybody, defender or critic of autonomy, recognizes that there are times when human beings have to obey the wants or commissions, the wishes or commands of others. And it is considered, considered morally right for them to do so. Children must obey their parents. Soldiers have to obey orders from their commanding officer. Athletes have to do what the coach says. Of course, this is not to deny that there are occasions when parents, commanding officers, and coaches should not be obeyed. Still, it is obvious, then, that there are legitimate authorities before whom one's personal autonomy should submit. I think everybody would agree on that. But then how do we know when an authority or a putative authority is legitimate? Is there a criterion we can use to decide? Some autonomy theorists have suggested one. They say that no exercise of authority or power over me is legitimate unless I freely authorize it. And that seems like a good place to start a search for, an, uh, for a criterion, but it is hardly workable in all cases. The parental example does not work at all, since people do not freely get to choose their parents. The military example might in a way work for those who voluntarily enlist, but certainly not for draftees. The athletics example, I guess, works well enough because athletes normally freely choose to compete. But then it seems to me that religion might satisfy this criterion in the same way. Because I think most people who practice a religion freely choose to submit to its teachings and demands. I take it this is true of most believers, even if as children they had originally accepted their religion unthinkingly on the authority of their parents. If I take the step of religious faith, I am, in, I am in effect accepting and authorizing that there be a divine authority over me. But the friends of autonomy sometimes present a moral argument against God. For example, English philosopher Robin LePedrin points out that religious people are committed, committed to obeying the commands of God just because they are commands of God. But that is not to act morally, LePedwin says. That is to act for moral reasons. To be a truly autonomous moral agent, I must act because of the moral, as moral aspects of the act itself. That is because of its intrinsic worth or rightness, not because somebody has commanded it. If I subordinate my will to God, that can mean that I am acting, maybe I'm acting out of the fear of consequences of disobedience, but as LePedman says, a morality based on fear is not morality at all. And James Rachels argues along similar lines. He first points out that Christianity requires a very high view of God, omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good, perfectly wise, worthy of worship, and a correspondingly low view of humans. We are held to be inferior to God and, as Rachels puts it, relatively worthless. Accordingly, it is a requirement of Christianity that God be obeyed unconditionally. But, says Rachels, to, admit, to submit oneself, oneself unconditionally to the moral authority of another, whether that authority be the law, or the customs of society, or the advice of parents, or the teachings of scripture, it is incompatible with being a moral agent. To be a moral agent, you have to be autonomous, 
and self-directed. Rachel's admits that we are sometimes we sometimes do not have enough time or are too ignorant or insufficiently experienced to deliberate morally. In those cases, he says it is acceptable to follow the guidance or advice of somebody else. But to abandon one's own judgment as a general strategy of living, that is to give up one's moral autonomy, is to rule out being a moral agent. So Rachel's has his own argument against the existence of God, and it goes like this. It's got three steps. Premise one, if any being is God, he must be a fit object of worship. Premise two, no being could possibly be a fit object of worship, since worship requires the abandonment of one's rule as an autonomous moral agent. Conclusion, therefore, there cannot be any being who is God. In short, according to Rachel's personal autonomy, implies atheism. Is that a convincing argument? Well, as an atheistic proof, it is weak. The most obvious point is that Rachel's argument presupposes that human beings are and cannot not be autonomous moral agents. And that claim seems highly implausible. And although this next point does not uh, represent my own opinion, it seems to me perfectly possible that God exists and that we are never moral agents. That is, we have no moral autonomy at all. That is, I think the statement, God exists and we are never, we are never moral agents, is false. But I think it's possibly true, and there have been people who have held such a view. Strongly predestinarian theological views suggest this very thing, as well as totally secular views made based on metaphysical determinism, the doctrine that every event is caused and thus is inevitable. Rachel's argument is valid only if those theories are not just false, but necessarily false. And if it is necessarily true that if anybody is a human being, she is an autonomous moral agent. And Rachel's himself, in effect, admits that such a claim would be false because as noted, he admits that it's sometimes, it is sometimes legitimate for human beings to fail to deliberate and simply to obey the orders or recommendations of others. Perhaps Rachel's will reply that his view is that all human beings are necessarily autonomous, at least on some occasions, and maybe that's true. I don't have any problem with that idea. It might be helpful to look at an actual divine command. So let's do that. Let's take the fifth of the Ten Commandments, which says, honor your father and your mother. And let's imagine the following scenario. There is a college student named Joe who is in a moral quandary. He very much wants to go to the basketball game tonight. But an hour before the game, he receives a telephone call from his mother in another state his mother informs him that his Aunt Mildred has been taken to a hospital that is located 20 minutes away from Joe's university. Joe, uh, his mother reports that Mildred will be having emergency surgery in the morning and asks Joe to visit her tonight in the hospital. And let's imagine further that the morally correct thing for Joe to do in this situation is to give up the basketball game and drive to the hospital and visit Aunt Mildred. And let's further imagine that that is precisely what Joe, in fact, does. But there might be several quite distinct reasons why Joe decides to do what his mother wants him to do. And the moral worthiness of his action might depend on his motivation. 
Let's consider four possible scenarios. One, Joe deliberates rationally and as an autonomous moral agent, as an autonomous moral agent, and despite his own wishes, decides that foregoing basketball and visiting his aunt is the morally correct thing for him to do. Scenario two, last Sunday, Joe happened to have listened to a sermon devoted to the fifth commandment. Accordingly, he decides that in order for him to obey God, in this case, and honor his mother, he must forego basketball and visit his aunt. Three, Joe decides to do the right thing because he fears the wrath of his mother if he does not. And four, Joe decides to visit Mildred because he hopes that she might, out of gratitude, give him a large sum of money next Christmas as a kind of reward. Obviously, there are almost an infinite number of other possible motivators for Joe's decision. Now, we are, of course, here very much in a Kantian or at least deontological neighborhood. We're trying to evaluate Joe's action, not on the basis of consequentialist or utilitarian considerations, what will produce the most good, that is, but on the basis of his motive. But let's weigh that point. Maybe deontology in some version is correct. Still, it is clear that Lepedvin and Rachel's will want to rule that scenario one, where he autonomously deliberated and then decided what to do, is the only one of the four in which Joe is a moral agent. In scenario two, where he was hoping to obey what he heard recommended in a sermon, they will say that Joe is not there a moral agent. His act, they will say, and as Kant might put it, was below the level of morality. And I will simply express deep, deep puzzlement as to why anybody would think that that is the case. It might just be possible to convince me that scenario one, where he deliberated and truly decided what to do, describes what is in some sense a superior moral act to the act described in scenario two, where he was trying to obey the sermon. But scenario two seems to me to be morally praiseworthy enough and if an act is morally praiseworthy at all, the actor who does the act is a moral agent. The act described in scenario four, hoping for a reward from Aunt Mildred, might indeed be below the level of morality. And perhaps the act described in scenario three, fear of his mother if he disobeys, is too. Since I'm prepared to grant LePedvin's point that acts done entirely or mainly out of fear are not moral acts. Now let's take a slightly deeper look at the thesis that human beings are personally autonomous. I'd like to know what status is that claim supposed to have? One possibility is that it's a necessary truth, but as noted, that seems clearly false. Even the friends of autonomy themselves allow that people sometimes give up their autonomy, that is by unconditionally following what they take to be divine commands. Well, can the thesis then be an evaluative recommendation that humans ought not to give up their autonomy? At times, something along those lines certainly seems to be the ideal. Friends of autonomy seem to deplore the fact that some people sometimes adopt a policy, policy excuse me, of following divine commands or somebody else's commands unconditionally. But the problem here is that those same defenders of autonomy admit, as we saw before, that in some cases it's perfectly acceptable to obey a command 
or follow a custom or rule without any moral deliberation at all. It looks then like the thesis has to be the claim that an act is moral, a moral act only if it is performed autonomously, only when the actor deliberates and decides for herself that it is morally right. If it is done for any other reason than that, it's not a moral act. But there is a problem here too. It seems to me perfectly possible for a person to deliberate consciously, conscientiously, sorry, and carefully and reach the conclusion that one should always obey a certain moral command from some authority, even if that authority is God. I would be willing to, to bet that free decisions to that effect have been made. I've made decisions like that. In other words, I think it's a mistake to hold that theists, people who believe in God, cannot freely deliberate and make up their minds what to do. And it is puzzling to me why anybody would think that Feinberg's notion of authority that I quoted earlier, I am, auto I am autonomous if I rule me and no one else rules I, it is a, is a desirable state to be in. It seems to me both that nobody actually is autonomous in this sense and that nobody should be. To, to insist on this sort of autonomy in all acts that are to count as moral is short-sighted. It ignores values like family responsibilities, loyalty to friends, benevolence toward colleagues, dependence on superiors like parents or bosses, and, I would add, duties to God. Now, defenders of autonomy will naturally object here that autonomous people can surely take these sorts of factors, or at least the first few, and they wouldn't admit that for God, into consideration in making their decisions. And I think that's right up to a point. I think, as I say, defenders of autonomy would have to rule out the last factor I mentioned, commands of God. But here's my point. In morality, it is sometimes right to take even the first four things that I mentioned, family values, loyalty to friends, benevolence toward colleagues, dependence on, on superiors like parents and so forth, to take them as constituting orders to be obeyed and not just factors to be taken into consideration. And that is what defenders of excessive autonomy are not willing to do. So what should Christians think of personal autonomy? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? To the extent that autonomy means independence or escape from God, as it often does seem to mean in the thought of those that uh, were defending what I'm calling excessive autonomy, it is obviously a value that Christians must reject. But if autonomy means the freedom to make moral decisions on one's own, that is what I'm calling real autonomy, I think Christians should embrace autonomy as a gift of God. I want to return to Genesis for a minute. In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here is another text about which there has been great disagreement in Christian history. What does it mean to say that human beings were created in God's image or likeness? It must minimally mean 
that despite the huge differences between God and human beings, there are points of similarity, too. One way to approach the issue is to ask how human beings differ from the other animals, since I think Genesis is very clear that the other animals were not created in the image of God. One point of difference seems to be that we, unlike the other animals, have a capacity for self-awareness, or what we call consciousness. Another is that we have a moral sense, a sense that quite apart from considerations of utility, some actions are morally right and others morally wrong, and that we are morally responsible for our actions. And here is where autonomy comes in. Virtually everybody will admit that we are not morally responsible for our actions unless in some sense we are free in doing them. If that reasoning is correct, then the freedom to choose is an aspect of the image of God. In some sense of the word autonomous, then, God wants us to be free and autonomous agents. God allows us, whether for good or ill, to run our own lives. Our autonomy is a gift from God. If autonomy in part means consciously making the best moral decisions that you can, then I would argue that autonomy not only allows, but requires dependence on others, especially rules, laws, advice, and guidance. Nobody wants to have to deliberate carefully in all moral decisions. That, after all, is one of the reasons that we have laws and cultural expectations. Law can be a moral shortcut. When you are driving your car and encounter a red light in an intersection, you do not have to go through a process of moral reasoning in order to decide what is the right thing for you to do. This is one of the reasons why freedom within limits is better than freedom without limits. Sometimes having to obey orders is better than not having to do so. I think I am much more likely to make bad decisions if I always make them as an autonomous agent. Of course, if I have freely decided to obey what I take to be God's law, then I am not free to decide to dishonor my father and my mother. That is one of the limits. But it has always been puzzling to me why defenders of what I am calling excessive autonomy hold, or at least seem to hold, that I am only free in relation to some law, expectation, or authority figure if I say no to it rather than decide to obey it. I submit that that idea is not only untrue, but obviously untrue. It is true, however, that belief in God, at least in Christian terms, requires us to do and admit certain things that we do not naturally want to do. For example, Christians have to admit that we were created by God and owe our existence to God. We have to admit that we belong not just to ourselves, but to God. We have to admit that we live under the moral requirement to honor God in our lives. We have to admit that we have all too often failed to live as God wants us to live. We have to admit that we accordingly, accordingly depend on God's mercy and grace. From the outside, from the point of view of the non-believer, that may look like the abandonment of autonomy. It may look like a kind of slavery. Years ago, a Jesuit friend and I were having a conversation about freedom. He said, despite all the vows, rules, and controls, I have found far more personal freedom since joining the Society of Jesus than I experienced before doing so. 
I have always been intrigued by my friend Don's statement. I've thought about it a lot. I am sure that many people would find it absurd, even ridiculous. And I'm also sure that my friend did not mean the word freedom to be understood in Feinberg's sense of autonomy. I think Don meant something like this. Before taking his vows, he was all too often controlled by his desires and impulses. Some of them were good and some of them were bad. After joining the Society of Jesus, he was free, with God's help, to remake himself, become a better person. If you live under authority, as Jesuits definitely do, and as all Christians do or should do, and if that authority is benevolent, you can be free. Thank you. For us, are we going to have Q&A or? Oh, okay. Okay, it's hard for me to see you, but who's going to have the courage to raise their hand and ask the first question? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I don't think it does. I mean, I think that's a different issue. And, and uh, to the extent to which the freedom God gives us is consistent or inconsistent with, with predestination is a question I have got, I've not got the answer to. I guess I would consign that to uh, one of the mysteries that's very difficult to understand in Christian faith. As a Presbyterian, I do have a doctrine of predestination, but I also believe in human free choice because I think the book of Genesis presupposes that that's what God gave Adam and Eve and, and gave gives to us as well. So uh, that's a question I'm afraid I can't answer for you. Can't do it. Does anybody want to ask a question that's a little bit easier than that one? All right. Gordon? Uh, uh, yeah, I guess I can do that. <laughs> okay, I, I didn't put Gordon up to that, by the way. Uh, he, he also writes books, as I do. But anyway, um, um, it's called Rational Faith, A Philosopher's Defense of Christianity. So as you probably picked up, I, I teach at Claremont McKenna College, Forrest said that, and it's a secular school. Okay, we have some Christians there. We have... University Christian Fellowship, that's the main Christian organization, and I've always been the faculty advisor of it, but most of the Christians, most of the students are not Christians at all, and the vast majority of the faculty are not Christians at all. And so over the, over my career, I've had lots of situations where people from, students from Claremont McKenna and other of the Claremont colleges come to my office, and, and it's pretty much known, it is known that I'm a Christian, and in fact a minister, and, and, uh, and they'll ask me questions like, one that I remember very well, a uh, Korean-American student who was a bio major. She was pre-chem um, and did eventually go on to medical school. Um, she was really confused and troubled by evolution, um, which was she was being taught in one of her biology classes. But the trouble was her Korean pastor at her home church was of the opinion that if you take one step toward evolution, you're basically selling Christ down the river. I mean, you're betraying Christ. 
And what do I do, Professor Davis? Okay, that's one. I get lots of others. I've gotten lots of others. Uh, I took a religious studies course, Professor, and can we really believe what the Bible says about Jesus? And uh, doesn't neuroscience prove that religion is false? I mean, okay, I decided a long time ago that toward the end of my career, after I got the other stuff out of the way that I wanted to write, I would get to this book, which is basically a book addressed at Christian students <coughs> and to some degree Christian faculty members too at secular universities and colleges, answering some of the most important theological and religious and spiritual questions that they've that they've got. And so that's what the book is all about. Fair enough? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I can. Okay, here's how the argument goes. I'm not living the kind of life God would want me to live if God exists, if God existed Therefore, God does not exist. Well, whether God exists or not has nothing whatever to do with the first statement. First statement is just a statement about the kind of life you're living. You could say, um, I'm living a life uh, as a member of the Buddhist religion. Therefore, God does not exist. Or I voted for Hillary Clinton. Therefore, God does not exist. The argument just doesn't follow. It, it doesn't follow as a, as a piece of logic. Now, what I think, though, is that it has psychological impact and that I think I've noticed over the years that my colleagues who are the most vociferous enemies of religion and Christianity are people who are living in a way that they know Christianity would not approve of or they think Christianity would not approve of anyway. And so that's the motivation for that argument. But it's just not a valid argument. A valid argument is where uh, if the premise or premises are true, the conclusion must follow. The conclusion doesn't follow from that one. Yes, sir. How, how can, his, his question is, how can uh, everybody in a big population of people have excessive autonomy? And I think that's right. I think the kind of autonomy that I was criticizing is basically an elitist ideal. Okay, I don't think you find this very much among poor people. Of course, they want to be free to make decisions and all that, but this is not a big, big issue among them. But I was talking to a colleague, this was several years ago, who was, who was, big on the idea that if you're a Christian, you have to obey all these rules, and I don't want to do that. Um, I want to decide my own life and uh, what I'm going to do in my own life. And this was cheating a little, because I know this guy well. I knew him well then, and I know him well now. And I know that um, there were some big problems he was facing, and I, I felt like saying, well, how is your kind of autonomy going for you? And I don't think it was going very well. And uh, um, he didn't listen to that, and he's still the same guy. And, and uh, anyway, I still love him and pray for him. But anyway, um, yeah, I think I think the kind of excessive personal autonomy that you see emphasized that I was talking about in the paper, you see that that emphasized among uh, cultural the kind of cultural elites that you see 
in universities and in entertainment world and in the media and places like that. Um, so I think you're right about that. Yeah. Florist, I have a feeling that the students want to get out of here. So maybe we're done. Are we? Where was it? Oh, you? Oh, okay. Who had a, their hand up? A little bit louder. Yeah, I heard a little. I heard you said you had a little bit of a question about what? No, I don't think it's equivalent to it at all. I think um, uh, pride, I think, along with most Reformed theologians, I think it's the uh, origin and root of all sin. And I think uh, pride kind of can be a big motivator for the desire for personal autonomy. I think in many people it is, but it's not the same thing. Yes, sir. Here, ma'am. Sorry. You a boy or girl? I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, female. Go ahead, yes. Yeah, absolutely it is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is connected to what the doctor asked me about. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Do you want to go further with that a little bit? I think you're right, but do you want to say more about that? Okay, good point. Excellent point. Okay, students, i got a question to ask you. Okay, you'll be next. Question to ask you. When I did that little burlesque-like statement that I think my students are thinking, nobody has the right to tell me, blah, 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 blah. do you recognize today's college students in that uh, little burlesque? Okay, some of you, anyway, yeah. Go ahead, yes. Are you from San Diego? Oh, that's too bad, okay. She has on a shirt that says San Diego, which is one of my favorite towns. It's about an hour away from where I live. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, um, I'll tell a story here. Um, several years ago, uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship wanted to have a, uh, a panel discussion for Christians at one of the dormitories at Scripps College, which is a women's college at the Claremont Colleges, but anybody could come, and there were boys there in the room too from other their colleges, obviously. And this was advertised as come and ask a group of Christian, Christians any question you want to ask, um, even difficult ones. And so on the panel was um, a student Christian leader, one of the university staff workers, and two faculty members one of which was me. And one uh, script student raised her hand and she says, the thing I don't get is, why are you Christians so hung up on telling us that we are sinners? I don't get that. Okay, I know that I've done some things that wrong in my life. I've made mistakes. There are some things I probably felt guilty about, but I don't think I'm a sinner at all. Why do you guys get off on calling us all sinners? And the other three panelists all sort of simultaneously looked at me as if, <laughs> as if, I know more about the subject of a personal sin or something than anybody else. Here's what I said to her. I said, first of all, what's your name? And she said, my name is Jennifer. Okay, so I said, Jennifer, let's do a thought experiment. 
thought experiment is something you do in physics where you don't have the money or the equipment or the technology yet to actually do the experiment, but you try to figure out as best you can what would happen if you actually did the experiment. Here's, here's the thought experiment. Um, let's say you, Jennifer, get to pick somebody that you absolutely trust. Let's say you pick your grandmother, who's going to always tell the truth and loves you and cares about you and so forth. And what we're going to do is we're going to have your grandmother follow you around for three months. And every time you, write, you say some kind of moral statement, she'll write it down like she shouldn't have lied to her parents or it's wrong to cheat on your income tax. Or just anytime Jennifer made a moral statement, the grandmother would write it down. At the end of three months or six months or whatever, this is a thought experiment. Could never really happen. What we'll do is we'll collate those in a, into a computer and we'll come up with a set of, of moral teachings that we'll call Jennifer's moral code, or at least it would be a good part of it. I'm sure she wouldn't have said everything in six months or whatever that, that she believed on morality. And then I said, let's imagine that what we'll then do is have your grandmother follow you around for another six months and see how well you do at following the commands in your own Jennifer's moral code. And I said, look, Jennifer, I can't speak for you, but if you're like me, I wouldn't do very well on that. There are probably a lot of things that I believe are moral and morally right that I don't do. I make mistakes. I do a lot of them. And that's what something like what Christians mean when they say everybody is a sinner. We don't say that every, we're not trying to say that everybody is like Hitler or Stalin or something like that. Um, we're not saying everybody is as bad as they could possibly be. We're saying that people don't even do a very good job of living up to the, to the tenets of their own, their own moral code, let alone the presumably much higher and demanding moral code that we find in the Ten Commandments and in the teachings of Jesus. Um, I think some kind of thought like that might help, although that would that'd be far too long of an explanation to explain to somebody in an elevator or something. But, 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 uh, um, in other words, if every moral decision we make, we make as autonomous moral agents, a lot of them we're going to make wrong. There will be less that we'd make wrong if we place ourselves under the authority, let's say, of Jesus. That would be my argument. I think we're done. Thank you.